0: Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. So again, uh, Mark uh, chapter 3, we're going to be reading in in, uh, verse 7. And the word of the Lord reads, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee, and Judea, and Jerusalem, and Idumea, and beyond the Jordan, and from Tyre, and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him, because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on a mountain and called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him. And he appointed twelve whom he named apostles, so that they might be with him and might, he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, Uh, to whom he gave the name Bonerges, which means the sons of thunder, Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. This is the word of the Lord. One of the the interesting things about preaching is that... um, um, the way that people t- tend to react to messages, because uh, people will oftentimes come to me and say something about the message afterwards, like, you know, hey, that really, that really spoke to me, or that message really convicted me, or, you know, um, um, and, and usually there's, like, a consistent theme that people come up and, and talk about. It's usually a consistent, like, you know what, hey, that really touched my heart, and, and multiple people would say the same thing. Um, you know, when I, when I preach a message on, on the love of Christ, people consistently come up and say, you know, I needed to hear that today. I really needed that, right? Or if I touch, you know, a message, we talk about a message that, that touches on, you know, or, or confronts our sins or confronts some of our preconceived ideas. People will come to me like, yeah, that really hit me, you know, right here. But then there are times I preach a message and then I'll have several people come to me uh, and they'll say that I'll appreciate something about the message, but it's typically sometimes not even the main focus of the sermon. There's just something in it that they heard that spoke to them, something that, that really wasn't even like where I was even thinking about, but it, it spoke to them. It was like last week, I did have some people come to me and say, hey, you know what? It did challenge me that you pointed out that we have a choice when it comes to God, but, but you know but we won't choose God unless he changes our our nature because our nature is not to choose God. But the biggest response, all right, the biggest response I got out of last week's message was this. I really loved how you worked in the Lord of the Rings in your sermon. You know what I mean? That That was the big reveal, right? Well, in fact, if we look at the text today, there's another quote from this series that's fitting for, uh, for where we're going. And in fact, if you remember the, the beginning of the movie, The Lord of the Rings, you know, as the music begins to play and then you hear the voice of Lady Galandriel, the, uh, the, uh, the elf, she says, The world is changed. I feel it in the water. I feel it in the earth. I smell it in the air. And, and really, that's exactly where we are in, in the text because the world has changed. I mean, Jesus of Nazareth, God in the flesh, was born into the world. And he came, you know, he, you know um, as, a, as a nobody from nowhere. Nobody, nobody knew that nobody was expecting him to be who he was. And then he gets baptized to what? Not take care of his own sins, but to identify with, with us as sinners. And he goes into the wilderness and he gets into, into a conflict with the devil, right? And then he emerges you know, preaching this this gospel that, that the time is now, the kingdom is here and that people need to repent and believe the gospel. And then he demonstrates his authority to preach this gospel by what? Casting out demons and healing people all around Galilee. And he continually preaches and proclaims like, over and over again. The time is now. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. You know, and, and, and come to the kingdom and the way into the kingdom is to repent or turn away from your sins and trust in the gospel. People were were to turn from their old life and their old their old ways and, and put their faith in, in God. And Jesus's message and, and his miracles became widely known, right? And and crowds began to follow him everywhere he went and, and this gets the attention of, of the Pharisees, a sect of Jewish men um, who who are known for their strict obedience to the law and their zealous devotion to god and this is a group of people who also have a lot of political muscle and they have the ability to enforce the the jewish laws and and, and as Jesus encounters these men, he gets into five separate conflicts with these these men and, and their their tradition their religious traditions first of which Jesus claims to have the authority to forgive sins and they think that he 's blaspheming second he is uh, jesus's Uh, willing to have fellowship and and close fellowship with, with the worst kinds of sinners, which they believe makes him unclean. And then third, Jesus and his disciples wouldn't follow the strict uh, man-made rules about fasting that the Pharisees did, and Jesus basically essentially told them, you know, your old you know, uh, religious tradition and the gospel are just not compatible with one another. And then fourth, Jesus challenges their understanding about the Sabbath law itself, and he claims authority over the Sabbath. And then finally, the last straw, Jesus heals a man on the Sabbath to, and, and to which the Pharisees believe Jesus is in violation of the law for working. And rather than rejoicing for this life that's been restored, the Pharisees left there and went away and conspired with their enemies because they wanted to make sure that Jesus died. And again, at that moment, everything changed. This is a a turning point in the story. From from this point on, we're going to begin to see a dramatic shift in the momentum of of the story of Jesus Christ. In fact, if you look with me at verse 7, it says, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea. And that's a sentence that's really easy to overlook if you're just reading Mark's gospel. Because one of the features of Mark's gospel, as we've talked about, is that it's an action-packed um, narrative. It moves really fast. It goes from one thing to the next very quickly. And, and, and it moves quickly through the ministry of Christ and it rushes toward the crucifixion of Jesus. In fact, it's been said that, 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 um, that Mark is, a, is an extended a crucifixion narrative with an extended introduction. Right? It moves quickly, and, and it's a great narrative to help us understand what it's like to be like Christ because it really focused, focuses more on what Jesus did than what he said. But, but the downside is sometimes Mark's gospel doesn't give you all the details that the other gospels give, and so it's easy to miss some things. Like today's text, there's a couple of places where we're, it's going to be beneficial for us to look at the other gospels to help fill in a couple of blanks. And this is important because the key theme uh, that Mark is is putting forward is the divinity of Christ. Right? Mark opens up the gospel proclaiming that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is God in the flesh. And Mark makes his point by demonstrating and, and, that, that that Christ is both sovereign and in control, and he's also omniscient and all-knowing. And this is really important. In fact, the first confrontation that Jesus has... Um, you know, with, with, uh, with these Pharisees, he declares that he has the power to forgive sins. And the Pharisees thought that Jesus was blaspheming, but they never actually verbalized their objection. They just, they just thought about it. In okay, Mark chapter 2, we read, it says, And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Your son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were, with, were there, questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God?" alone, right? And they didn't say these things that way, they thought them, and then look, notice what Jesus says, or it says, and immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned, them, questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Jesus knew what they were thinking without even, without them saying it, because he is omniscient, right? And this is important for the text today, because the reason why we now read this story, right, this transition that Jesus withdrew, with his disciples to the sea is because Jesus is all-knowing and omniscient. There's something that he knows. It's just Mark doesn't tell us what it is that he knows. In fact, keep your place in Mark chapter three, but but turn with me to Matthew chapter 12. All right, Matthew chapter 12. Beginning in, in verse nine. And what we're gonna see here in this, is that this is the same exact story we covered last week, where Jesus heals a man with a withered hand on the story, and and and, and the story, uh, the way that Matthew tells it reads like this. And he went on from there, and entered the synagogue, and a man with a withered, a man was there with a withered hand, and he said to him, or and, the, and they said to him. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath, and so that they might accuse him? So again, we have the same exact story, right? And then he said to them, which one of you has a sheep, uh, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Now, again, Matthew records a little bit more detail than Mark here. It kind of fills in a little bit of the blanks, but I want you to notice it says, right, and then... He said to the man, stretch out your hand, and, and, and the man stretched, out his, stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. All right, And then verse 15 is where, is where we, uh, is the important detail that we're lacking. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. You see, Jesus is, is when, when the Pharisees left, the, um, when they left with the decision to kill him, he already knew that. He knew exactly what was going on. Right? That that their old wineskins, so to speak, of their old religion had basically had enough of the gospel and and they burst and they decided to kill Jesus. But but this wasn't public knowledge. This wasn't like they were running around telling, we're gonna get that Jesus guy, right? But rather Jesus being God is now aware of this, and that's why the story begins to change here. Right? That the reason why he withdraws the sea. Right, that we find in, in, in Mark chapter 3. The Pharisees have, have decided to kill him, and Jesus is now he is aware of that, and suddenly he's, gonna, he's, he's basically having to be careful in his, in his movements. Right? But notice what it says. It goes, Then a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from Tyre and Sidon. You see, in spite of the controversy uh, with the Pharisees, though, in spite of their dislike of Jesus and their distrust of him, Jesus is becoming more and more popular. There are people um, that, that are not even just from the district of Galilee. There are people that are coming from all over the region now. Right? And, and they're coming from not just predominantly Jewish regions, but they're coming also from Gentile areas as well. They're coming from all over. And the reason why they're coming is because, because when, when, as it says here, when the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. They'd heard about Jesus' healing. They'd heard about him casting out demons. They heard about people, you know, being made well again, and, and people with all manner of afflictions were flocking to him. In fact, right, there, there were so many people that were coming to him that now Jesus is not only in danger of the Pharisees, but he is now in danger of the crowd. Right? Notice what what it says in verse nine. And he told the disciples, right, who have to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. I want you to just visualize this for a moment. People have these terrible health conditions. They have these these diseases and deformities and disabilities and people that are in severe pain and they're, they're suffering horribly and they have terrible prospects for the future right? And essentially people that have no hope because there is no modern medicine. I mean, there are people that, that treat people with diseases and they have medicine, but it's nothing like today. I mean, even an infection, a simple infection could cost somebody their life, right? And so, and so they have no hope, but then they hear about Jesus's ability to heal. They, they hear that this man is healing people with all these different kinds of conditions. And suddenly now there's a ray or a flicker of hope for them. And all they care about Understand this. All they care about in that moment is getting close to Jesus. If you were in the same situation, you probably care about the same thing. They wanted to be healed, and that's it. And these people don't really care so much about who Jesus is, right? And they're not really thinking about, you know, is this the Messiah or not? Is this, right? What What they care about is getting healed. They're not even thinking about other people. They're focused on one thing, getting healed, and that's the truth. Now, what happens Right? What happens when you take hundreds or even thousands of people with the same mindset all converging on the same geographical place where everybody's focused on, on getting close to Jesus? What happens then? It's, it's chaos. I mean, we, we've witnessed this kind of chaos before in our own world where hundreds or maybe thousands of people all converge on a store on Black Friday to get 50% off of a game console, Right? We, we've seen that happen. We know what that looks like when people converge in a small area when they're, everybody's out for their own interests. People are pushing and shoving and getting violent, spraying each other with pepper spray. mean, we've seen it over and over again. And, 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 and the thing is, this is not just an American thing though, right? Because the same thing happens when when countries bring relief supplies to, and, and food to areas where people are starving to death, when hundreds and thousands of people converge that are desperate, they converge in one small spot as they're trying to pass out food. What do we see? People stepping on each other. People pushing each other out of the way. People violently trying to get, you know, get the sustenance they need just for a handful of food suddenly you see this mob mentality. Well, that's kind of the picture that we have here. This isn't a room full of people where, where there was some control. I mean, even then they were tearing the roof off the house. But here, it's a mob. And, and, the, and, and it's a giant mob of people. And, and everyone's trying to get close to Jesus so they can touch him. And this crowd is so big that it's even dangerous. And it threatens to overrun and crush Jesus. And that's why it says that Jesus said that to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. Right? This is a dangerous situation. Imagine even just the noise. I mean, you know, you go to like, like a sporting event here in Boron, especially in the gym. It's noisy, right? But can you imagine a crowd like this? The noise and the, and the chaos. People pushing and shoving. And so Jesus has them get him a boat so that he can actually like take this boat out in the water a little ways to give him some room away from the crowd. And that way he can stand there to do what he really came to do. And what did he really come to do? Preach gospel because remember jesus's mission here on earth was to save sinners he came to proclaim the gospel and his healing and his casting out demons was a demonstration of his authority to forgive and proclaim the good news and give eternal life but notice these people they have not come for the gospel they have not come because they heard the gospel They have come to have their demons cast out. They have come to be healed. They have come because they want their lives to be made better, right? That is the reason why the crowd is there. And this is important for us to think about because this is a detail that, again, so many of us overlook because, yes, these people were all in need, but they were all coming to Christ for the wrong reason. I want you to hear me on that. They were absolutely in need but they were coming to Christ for the wrong reason. You see, Christianity isn't about Jesus, that you come to Jesus so that your life will be better. Yes, Jesus can make your life better, but that's not the reason why you come. It's not come to Jesus and your body will get healed. Yes, Jesus can heal you, but that's not the reason why you come to Christ. It's not come to Christ and your marriage is going to work out. And yes, Jesus can heal marriages. We've seen that happen. But that is not the reason to come to Christ. Or come to Jesus and he will make sure that you have enough money to pay your car payment. And believe me, God provides and he can and he does incredible things even when people are in tough situations. That is not the reason that we come to Christ, though. You see, Christianity isn't about Jesus, right, and, 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 and your life being better. No, the reason to come to Christ is because you desperately need to be saved from your sin and the wrath of God. That is the reason why we ultimately come to Jesus. You were you to come to Jesus because of the gospel. You see, Jesus didn't come simply to, to solve people's problems here and now. I mean, he can. But ultimately, whatever problem you get solved in your life today, you're going to have more problems tomorrow to get healed from this infirmity only to get sick of something else. I mean, we all experience that. You get over the, the flu, right, to get bronchitis. You get over bronchitis to have pneumonia, right? And, and, and whatever problem you experience now, you might, you know, God might provide for you now to where you make all your payments today, but then tomorrow you fi- face another financial situation, right? Whatever problems get healed here and now and taken care of here and now, there are going to be more problems. And ultimately, there's the worst problem. Ultimately, all of us are going to What? We're all going to die. Everyone dies. Every person that Jesus healed in the Bible, by the way, just so you know, every person Jesus ever healed is dead, right? He even raised Lazarus from the dead, and and Lazarus is dead. So the reason isn't to come to Jesus for what he can do for us here and now. Now, understand, he can help here and now, but that's not the reason why he came. He came to bring salvation to the lost, and the healings and the miracles— or were certainly gracious, compassionate acts of God. And, and hear me, okay, I want you to hear me on this. God loves to give good gifts, and he loves to give good things to his children, and he loves to be compassionate. But these miracles were primarily and still are primarily about establishing Jesus' power and authority to bring salvation to the world. Miracles were about helping people see the reality of the gospel, and, and, and the chaos that you see here and the giant mob is the result of when people come to Christ for the gifts rather than the giver of the gifts. They come for the gifts rather than for Christ. Their hearts are not set on Jesus but rather themselves. And understand this right here is one of the greatest issues facing the church today. People coming to church and professing faith in Christ because they want something for God, from God instead of God himself. And I want you to to hear me. I'm going to be really, really clear because I don't want to be misunderstood. I don't want my words taken out of context here. When your life is sideways and when you're experiencing pain and when you suffer and you can't seem to do anything right and your life is a total mess, yes, turn to God. Every time. And when you need to be healed and when your marriage is falling apart and your financial world is a mess and you're battling addiction or your depression and anxiety is overwhelming you, turn to God. Cry out to Him. Shout out His name. Fall on your knees in prayer and seek His face. Absolutely. Those things should be things that cause you to come to God. But they need to be a catalyst to drive you to God. They should be the things that cause you to desire to be close to Him and have a relationship with Him and fall in love with Him and to trust in Him and to depend upon Him. But the problem is, is that many people want relief, but they don't want a relationship. They want the goods. They just don't want the giver of the goods. They want the gifts that God can give, but they don't care about a relationship with, with the giver of the gifts. The greatest desire is not for God himself. That's why most of the biggest churches in America, and I said most, not all, okay? Most of the biggest churches in America preach a what's called a prosperity gospel, and it's because people want for God to bless them. People want for God to give them the material possessions of their hearts and to prosper them and to make them rich and to solve all their problems, but they really don't want God himself, you begin to talk about repentance and holiness and righteousness and they don't want to hear none of that. They want to hear about what God can you do for me because what happens is when you turn to God and you're suffering your pain, right? What happens then when he doesn't give you what you're asking for? What happens to your faith when you turn to God and he doesn't heal you? When, when he doesn't fix your marriage, when, when he, he doesn't keep the bank from foreclosing What then? What do you do then? Do you still love him? Do you still trust in him? Do you still depend upon him? What happens when you desperately are praying for God to heal your child of cancer, right? But he doesn't do it. What is your relationship like with God then? Again, don't misunderstand. God can and he does do amazing things. We've seen it. We've all seen it. We've we've prayed for people and see God do amazing things. God is compassionate. God is gracious. He loves to give good gifts, but sometimes when you pray to Him, the answer is no. Sometimes. And you don't know why. Like he said to the, the Apostle Paul, who said, Lord, take this thing from me three times. And he says, my grace is sufficient for you. My grace is enough for you you see the reason to come to Christ is Christ the reason to come to him is, is is for the life-giving relationship he is to be your treasure he is to be your greatest desire he is to be right your hope why because he is all altogether worthy he is the greatest hope that you have. You come to Christ for Christ, not for material possessions, not for healing, not so that you be a better person, and not even so that you can escape hell. And I want you to hear me on that one too. Because okay. understand, Christ absolutely came to spare us, the eternal punishment from hell for those who put their trust in him. But we don't simply come to Christ to avoid hell. Like You didn't get married so you could avoid being lonely. There's a lot easier ways to not be lonely by the way. Right? You you got married because you love someone. And then one of the greatest benefits is that you are not lonely anymore. That's why I think that it's important that we preach the, the gospel to the kids the right way because for years it's been like this. Do you believe in Jesus? Well, no, I don't even know who Jesus is. Well, Jesus died for you so you don't go to hell. Do you want to go to hell? Well, well no, I don't want to go to hell, right? Well then believe in Jesus. Okay, I believe in Jesus. What does that mean? That's not the gospel. Right? You don't come to Jesus to avoid hell. And, and you don't come to Jesus because someone told you that if you don't trust in Jesus, you're going to be left behind because you don't want to be left behind, do you? One of the, one of the worst tactics of the church in the 80s and 90s was to push people for a decision in Christ and to, and to, to cajole them into praying some prayer so, they, so just, just in case they, they might get left behind. right? Because look what's happening in Russia. Look what's happening in, in the European Union. You don't come to Jesus because you're trying to avoid hell or trying to avoid being left behind. You come to Jesus because he's worthy. You come to Jesus because he's your life. You come to Jesus because he gave his life for you, individually. Think about who you are. He died for you. You come to Jesus because he's your greatest hope and your greatest treasure. Yes, turn to him in your infirmities and pain, absolutely, and cry out to him seek his face when nothing else makes sense but trust in him and hold on to him no matter what happens and no matter how he answers your prayer because he is your hope and so so here in this part of mark we see that the things have changed and the pharisees are wanting to kill him the crowds are beginning to get out of control and and this begins a transition um in in the story But before Mark changes things, uh, he comes right back to the main point that he set forth in the beginning. And we see that in, in verse 11. He says, when the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. Mark comes right back to the place that he begins and that he opens up with the fact that Jesus is the son of God. Right, Mark opened with that, and he, he, came, he sought to prove that over and over again. And again, he comes back to this. Even the enemies of God, the demons themselves, acknowledge the fact that he, he is the Son of God, and they must fall down before him in submission to his sovereign power. Now, verse 13 is actually an important transition point in the text. Because we ha- what we have here is Jesus goes from being this nobody from, from, from nowhere to a man who is widely known and crowds are following him everywhere, and he goes and, and, he, and he reaches his physical capacity to spread the, the, the gospel of Jesus Christ because Jesus is confined himself to be a man, which means he can only geographically cover so much territory at one time. And so now Jesus decides to take his ministry to the next level. Verse 13 it reads. And he went up on the mountain and he called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. Now, a couple of things I wanted you to make note of here is, is this is another event where Mark's action-packed gospel doesn't give us all the details. Right? It just kind of skips over some things. This is this right here, get to understand, this is a huge moment in, in redemption history. This is a huge Time, you know, in what God is doing, He is moving from right, you know, where Jesus is 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 singularly preaching the gospel, healing. Right now, He's going to commission several of His followers. Right? Not only to follow him, but to actively get involved and be his representatives here on earth to do what he is doing. This is a huge transition in the story here. And so this is where like everything begins to really build momentum. And so Jesus doesn't just walk up on the mountain and say, I want you, 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 you come with me and, and we're done. That's, there's more to the story than that. In fact, in, in the Gospel of Luke, we find that Jesus went up on the mountain and he spent the night in prayer before the Father. And then he began to choose those whom... He wanted a commission. In fact, in Luke chapter six it reads, beginning in verse 12, "In these days he went out to the mountain to pray, and, and all night, look at that, all night he continued in prayer to God, and then and when day came, he called his disciples and chose from the twelve whom he named apostles." You see, this is such an important point, right? An, inter- an important turning point in Jesus' life in ministry that he spends the night in prayer with the Father. He spends the night in prayer with God. And, and I mention this because as followers of Christ, do we even remotely live like this? I mean, because what, what are we? We are christ followers the name of this series is following jesus right he is to be our model he's our he's he we're we're to base our life on him we're to be conformed in his image do we live like this i mean if you've had a major decision coming up in your life whether it's a big decision about work or relationships or or whether to move or take advantage of an opportunity right how much time do you actually spend seeking god's counsel Will you spend all night praying to God about something. How about an how about an hour? Ever done that? Half an hour? How about how about ten minutes? How about the thirty second? Heavenly Father, Lord, please bless this decision. Or maybe you're like me, who oftentimes find that that, that you've you've had an important decision that you've been on your mind for a long time, you've been thinking about it a long time and you've you've written down the pros and the cons and you've kind of puzzled over it and you've gotten advice about it and you've talked about it and then you realize like you like you finally, you make the decision you go, I didn't even pray about that. And you're like, Lord, please bless, the, bless this decision I just made, right? And, and, and help me to have favor and, and I hope that this is in your will because if it's not in your will I'm going to be in trouble because I already made the decision. Can't go back on it now. How many of you How many of us have ignored or forgotten the fact that we have a 24-hour day, day seven-day-a-week, 365-day open connection to the God of the universe who is always ready to hear us and to listen to us and give us wisdom? James says, if you lack wisdom, ask of God, and he gives it generously. How many decisions in your life have you would be different? How about that one? How many decisions in your life would be different if you would have actually like, taken the time to seek God and really pray it out? I know in my own life, there's a lot. Jesus, who is God in the flesh, made a point to get alone with, with the Father and pray all night over a decision. How much more then should be? And so Mark says, he went up on the mountain and he called him those whom he desired and they came to him and he appointed 12 whom he named apostles so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority and cast out demons. Jesus selected among his followers 12 men to be specifically commissioned and empowered to, to replicate what Jesus has been doing, to proclaim the gospel and to perform miracles in order to validate the fact that they have the authority to proclaim that, that message and what I want you to notice here is that, that, that Jesus now gives them a title, the title of apostle. And this term simply means sent out one, but, but it becomes significant because Jesus not only gives these men a special commission, but he gives them a special name, apostles. And, 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 what's, and what's important to realize is that Jesus didn't simply have 12 disciples. This is, this is one of those things where we kind of get tripped up in our own language as Christians. We always talk about the disciples and people think of the 12 disciples. Jesus had many disciples. There were many people that were actively following Jesus wherever he went, you know, hanging on his every word. He had lots of disciples, right? And out of those disciples, he selected 12 people that became apostles. And so when they're usually referring to that, the the, the New Testament will say the apostles or the 12. There's a a focus on that. But there are 12 hand-selected men who were not only called to preach the gospel, but also they were given supernatural ability to heal and cast out demons. Twelve men sovereignly selected by God to, um, to play an important part in redemptive history. And, and who were these, these noble men? Well, Mark tells us. It says in verse 16, he appointed the twelve, Simon, whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and uh, John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Bono- uh, Bonog I always get this messed up. Bonargis, that is the son of the, called the sons of thunder. Andrew and Philip, Bartholomew and Matthew, Thomas and James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot, whom betrayed him. And I want you to, I want you to think about this. Jesus, right, the Son of God, the Sovereign, all-knowing Son of God, spends a night in prayer to pick twelve men. For a special assignment that will ultimately change the entire course of the world. And who is it that he picks? He picks a fisherman named Peter. And Peter, to his credit, was the first person to recognize and proclaim that Jesus is the Messiah. He was also one of Jesus's three people in his inner circle. The, the, one of the three people closest to Jesus. But he also had a very big personality and he was very kind of, um, you know, boisterous. He becomes the leader of the early early church. But Peter is also a deeply flawed man. Right? He's, he's boastful. He's arrogant. He's really full of himself. And, and, and he even tries to rebuke Jesus. If you remember that story, he tries to rebuke Jesus when Jesus said he's going he's to die. And, and Peter's like, that's not going to happen to you. And Jesus even says to him, get behind me, Satan. Right? Like I wouldn't want Jesus to call me Satan. Right? And, and if that weren't enough, then, then Peter goes and he denies knowing Christ not one time. Not two times, but three times. Think about that. He like said, I don't even know who you're talking about. A little girl comes up to him and says, aren't you one? And he's like, no, I don't even know that guy. And then you have John. right? John is the man that Jesus selects to actually take care of his mom when he's on the, on the cross. And he's the, he's the apostle that lived, lived longer than any other apostle. And, and John affectionately refers to himself in his own gospel as the, the, the one that Jesus loved. But he wrote the Gospel of John. He wrote three letters of John. He, and he also wrote the book of Revelation. Also pastored the church in Ephesus. But he and his brother were called the sons of thunder, which is a reference to their personality. They were loud and, and outspoken and fiery. In fact, if you remember the story where Jesus and, and his His disciples and his apostles went to the Samaritan village and they rejected Jesus and the message. And John's like, hey, man, Jesus, you want me to call down fire from heavens and let's just burn this place up? That's kind of like his personality. Right. And and John and his brother James actually then sneak around and kind of like ask Jesus kind of like on the sly, like, hey, can we be like your like best buds? And, you know, when you come in your kingdom, you know, I mean, that's the kind of guys they were not perfect men by any stretch of the imagination. And then there's Andrew, Peter's brother, Philip and Bartholomew. And then there's Matthew, which is Levi. And we all, we just heard about his story, right? And then you have Thomas, who was the doubter, didn't even believe that they saw the risen Christ. And then James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus. And then you have Simon the Zealot, who um, the, the name Zealot actually means, is related to the idea that he was a political radical. He was, I mean, he was like somebody that was like politically active and, and he was, it's been thought by some commentators to be a part of a violent resistance to the Romans. And then there's Judas. And if you're a Christian or you know anything about Christianity at all, you kind of kind of know who that guy is. But when you look at this list of men, you realize, like, Jesus uses the most unlikely people. Right? He didn't use the best educated he he didn't use hyper religious he didn't use people that had the best political connections or had you know a lot of financial ability to to move the kingdom along he didn't choose people that were perfect by any stretch of the imagination and what i need what you and i need to see in this text is jesus chose average ordinary flawed people for the most important leadership positions in in in, in the in his mission jesus used ordinary i mean We're talking about mostly blue collar, uneducated, really nobodies. Average, ordinary people for the most important leadership positions in his mission. He chose ordinary, flawed men. And this is important because Jesus, because God can use whoever he wants to to further his kingdom. And I think this is important for all of us as Christians to, to, to remember because I think it's really easy. And in the modern context, especially in America, we look around and we see what we think church success is. You know, these people that have these churches with like thousands and thousands of people and these, these ministries that are, that are doing like these incredible things. They have these just these wild numbers. But God moves the entire kingdom of, of heaven, right, on the unknown. No matter who you are, and no matter where you've been in your life, no matter what you've done in your life, God can use you. And he can use you to do great things. Because when God called you to follow him, he also equipped you and he, he gifted you in order for you to get plugged into God's service. It is God's plan and purpose for you to be involved. Every Christian. In fact, in Ephesians, you know, chapter 2 is one of the most beloved Verses. It's, it, it, everybody should know it, but they always forget. They get they get through nine and ten, and they stop. I mean, through through eight and nine, they they stop it at ten. Paul says these incredible words: "For by grace you have been saved through faith." Hallelujah! Amen to that. Right. That's that's our hope that we've been saved by, by grace through faith. That's our hope. It's not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. And then he says for, and that word for is a connecting word. That means that, that what he's about to say is connected to what he just said, for. And because of that, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We have all been called to be a part of the mission of God. The reason why he saved you, the reason why he gave you life, so you can also be a part of the mission of God, and God has equipped all of us to be in mission for God, and he can use anyone. Look at these guys, <laughs> right? He can use anyone he wants to to achieve his mission. Now, in that, one of the things that many people will notice and wrestle with is this glaring decision that Jesus made to choose Judas because understand, Jesus did choose him. This was not an accident. Now, this is not something people really think about or like to think about, but it's the truth. Jesus chose Judas. He, he, Judas was hand-selected by God. And it's not to say that Jesus didn't know what Judas was about or how he would react because Jesus, has, we've already seen, that he is omniscient. He's all-knowing. He understands. He knows who Judas is. He knows Judas' heart. He knows that Judas is going to be part of, the, part of the, what, the, the role that he's going to play in history. In fact, it's been planned for. He is part of God's sovereign plan. God is going to use him and his hardened heart to accomplish the plan of God's redemption, which includes his betrayal, torture, and the killing of of Christ on a Roman cross. And Jesus knows this. And he still selects him, and he still ministers to him, and invests in him, and commissions him. And he's still even, in, in the book of John, we read about you know, him washing the, his disciples' feet. This is before Judas left. He washes Judas' feet in an act of love and service for him too. You see, one of the things that we need to come to terms with is God's plan is not going to always make sense to you. Because God, in here, in your life, and in my life, in the world around us, is going to do things that won't initially, we're just not going to understand or, or expect You're going to have a plan. I think this is what God wants me to do. This is the direction my life's going. Everything's going great. And then something happens and you're like, why? It's not going to always make sense. The problem is is that in the moment, it seems counterintuitive, but in the context of eternity, it will ultimately make sense. But we don't live right now in eternity. And so something that happens in our lives and in the world that God allows or ordains to happen will not make sense here and now. And so there will be times when you're praying, God, heal my mom of cancer. God, help me get that job that'll change my life. God, please restore my relationship to my estranged daughter. I miss her so bad. There'll be times when God says no. And you'll wonder, what in the world's going on here? Why me? Where are you, God? I've done all these things for you. I pray, I tithe, I go to church. And we'll be met with silence. And you may not even know in this lifetime why things are the way they are and why God has allowed what he's allowed. But it's in those times that we are called to turn and trust in him. And and know that he is good. That he is Just. And that he is gracious and merciful, and to remember that he used someone like Judas to bring salvation to the world. He used Judas as an instrument to bring about Christ's suffering for us on our behalf. Because because the truth is, God uses not only good people and good circumstances for His glory, but He also uses evil people and circumstances for His glory. As we, as we all. As we said last week, all things work together for the good of those who love him and called according to his purpose. And all things actually work out for his glory. Even the evil, God is in control. God can do whatever he wishes and take the worst of circumstances and work it out for our our benefit and his good. I mean, think about this. The greatest evil in the history of evil has to be the suffering and the death of the innocent Son of God on the cross for our sins. I mean, if you're going to define unfair, wouldn't that qualify? I mean, we, 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 we want to talk about fairness all the time when we come to God. I mean, people want to appeal to fairness when he doesn't answer their prayers. How is that fair? Why isn't that fair? Right? We, we, we struggle with fairness when we think about God's sovereignly choosing who he will. Right? But the truth is, what is fair ultimately? What is fair is for us to be given what we deserve for our sins, which is justice. That's what's fair. But God ordained that the world's most evil in history would fall upon his own beloved son. So that through that we might be saved and bring God the greatest possible glory. And there is an evil in this world that God cannot use for his, his own glory and our good. And again, not, it's, it's not always ours to understand the reason why. It is ours to trust that God is who he says that he is and that he will keep the promises he's promised to us. God is in control of all things, and he can take the very worst, and he can work it out for our good. And, and I don't know about you, but that's, that's a comforting thought to me, that ultimately I know that no matter what's going on around me, that God is at work. But then there's also the sobering thought that this story of Judas brings Judas was hand-selected by Jesus, which means Judas thought he was one of them. Judas thought he was a follower of Christ. He thought that he was part of the movement. But he betrayed Jesus. He walked away and ultimately committed suicide. And this, for us, should always cause us to examine ourselves. Salvation is not simply about a profession of faith. That's the part that most of us or many of us struggle with. We're not saved by saying words. I want you to hear me on that. We're not saved because we magically say some words. We, we're not saved because we're praying some prayer. You're not saved by professing faith, right? In Jesus, so that you can avoid hell or not be left behind. You're not saved by what you say, right? And now, understand. I don't want you to miss what I'm saying here. Should you make a profession of faith? absolutely. Should you pray, Lord, forgive me, please save me? Absolutely. But just because a person self-identifies as a Christian doesn't make it so. People identify as lots of things in our world today that aren't really so. But just because a person says, I'm a Christian, doesn't mean that they are. Look at Judas. Judas identified as a follower of Christ. salvation is, is more than simply a profession. Salvation is also not just about gifting. Judas was commissioned to preach the gospel and even cast out demons. He was one of them that could do that. But yet he's still an unbeliever. Which, Which means, just because a person seems charismatic, and just because a person is a good speaker, or just because a person seems to be able to do things that are miraculous, that only God should be able to do, does not mean that they're a believer. We live in a culture right now where celebrity pastors are all the rage and people flock to them, right? Not knowing that many of these people are, are, are false teachers, right? But they seem to be so charismatic. Like one particular influential pastor, he was actually used for the hype video for the Super Bowl. He's like super popular. But this man has a church of thousands of people in a TV ministry and he openly denies the, 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 the trinity, Openly, like, like, like it's, it's pure heresy, but thousands and thousands of people will follow him because he, because he seems to be supernaturally gifted from God. Or another church in Northern California that boasts that preachers have the ability to physically heal people. They play this little game with stretching people's legs out to make them think that they're growing their legs. And then during their worship services, they actually put, have somebody go up and they put gold, like this dust and fog stuff, in the air conditioning units. And so at the right time during the the worship set and when prayer, suddenly they call it they call it the glory cloud, right? That this supernatural, the Holy Spirit just manifests himself, and they actually have feathers flying in the air, and they call them angel feathers. These people don't even have the gifts, the real gifts of Judas, right? And they are false converts because. Because a person seems to have a gifting from God, it doesn't make them saved. And neither does leadership. Neither does a leadership position. One of the greatest tragedies in America um, is, a, is an issue of extremes. On one end, you have the, the average Christian who doesn't really care or have much respect for the office of the pastor because they don't want to be under somebody's authority. But on the other end, you have the extreme of these charismatic, and I say that charismatic is like the ability to lead people, not as in speaking in tongues. That's a different thing. Um, but they have these leaders that have this ability to, to to wield and use just deep loyalty from from other people that are that are, and, and it just it's it's amazing to me that they will follow these false teachers, just because a person ends up in ministry. And and has a position or a title, does not mean he or she is actually saved? In fact, there are several pastors and ministers from what is known as the emergent church movement that are now now professing atheists. Like before they were like in church, you know, preaching and, and worshiping and talking about God and now they've come out and say, yeah, we've written a book on how we're atheists now, but we still go to church. It doesn't make any sense to me. So salvation is not about leadership or, or gifting or a profession of faith. Salvation is and it has been and will continue to be what Christ calls us to. Salvation is about repentance and faith. That's what it's about. Repent of your sins and put your faith and your hope in the, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yes, absolutely. Pray to the Lord about it. Yes, Confess it, but then turn from your old life and turn towards God. It's not simply about the words you say or the or the gifts that, that you have, you know, or the ability to lead. It's wholly about you depending upon the finished work of the cross. This, for us as Christians, is the issue. Your salvation is about your dependence on and faith in what Christ did for you on the cross, and that is it. Judas betrayed Jesus and Jesus willingly went to the cross and hung up there, beaten and bloody in order to pay for your sins so that you could be made clean. And all you have to do to have this eternal life right now is to let go of everything else that you hold on to and hold on to the truth. Let go of your self-righteousness. Let go of your pride. Let go of your attendance record in church. Let let go of the notion that you're a good person. Let go of the notion that God owes you anything else but wrath and justice. Let go of the, well, I I prayed a prayer when I was like seven years old and asked Jesus in my heart. Let let go of all of the external things and hold on to Jesus. Jesus yes make your profession of faith absolutely declare it from the rooftops absolutely pray it out to him over and over again absolutely but hold on to Jesus as the hymn uh, writer puts it nothing in my hands I bring only to the cross of Christ I cling you are a sinner who is hopelessly condemned in your sin and there's nothing you can do to fix it and you rightly deserve the wrath of God to be poured out on you. But in spite of that, God, by his grace, loved you. And he loved you not because of anything that you have done for him. He loved you because he chose to love you. And because he loved you, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, into the world to rescue you. And he did that by trading places with you. Jesus lived a perfect life that you couldn't live. And he died to pay a debt that you couldn't pay. And the process took upon himself all of your sin... Right? Past, present, and future, praise the Lord. And in return, he gives to you the righteous standing that he had before God and that you can live forever without fear in his presence. And he died on that cross and was buried three days later and was resurrected as proof positive that your debt has been paid in full and accepted by God the Father. And all you have to do to receive that gracious gift and eternal life is to repent and believe the gospel. That's it. Hold on to it. Hold on to it and you're saved. Now as we wrap up, there's a couple things I want to encourage you in. Number one is to to check your own heart. Um, Because I want you to examine why you want Christ. Do you want Christ because of what you believe he's going to give you and do for you? Or do you want Christ because you want Christ? Because he's worthy. I don't know about you, but like, like the the idea of of, of 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 Christ dying on the cross is just something that just destroys me emotionally. I can't take that thought. I know who I am. That makes me love Jesus more than I can I can possibly express. And then he offers me eternal life. Praise the Lord. He offers me the ability to to to, to spend the rest of 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 my eternity in heaven, praise the Lord. And then on top of that, he sends the Holy Spirit into my heart to, uh, to guide me and to lead me and to direct me and, and to give me guidance with my family. And he, he gives me a, a renewed love for his people. Praise the Lord. Why is it that you come to Christ? You come to Christ because, because you, you want him to, to make you not feel sad anymore? He can do that, but is that the reason why you come? You come to Christ because you're hoping that maybe by, by, by getting right with God then suddenly your financial future gets better? I mean, those things do happen, but that's not the reason. And I, and I, and I say that to say is because we all have our battles. There are going to be those days where you're going to be on fire for the Lord and you're excited, and you're focused on Jesus all the time and then something happens and you begin to kind of like drift because we are very prone to take Jesus off of the throne of our hearts and put ourselves back there. We are all prone to that. I think it's, I think it's important that we regularly check our hearts number two check your prayer life (laughs) and i say that to say is like this is one of those areas i have to check myself all the time like we have a 24 hour seven days a week 365 days a year connection to god like anytime you come to him and and say his name you are in his presence in fact if you're a christian he lives inside of you he always hears your prayers how is your prayer life are you spending time alone with him And then third, I say, check your relationship with God and and ask the question, are you saved? And and I say that to say, is because I don't ever, I mean, I want people to walk in in the assurance of their salvation, but my heart as a preacher is always Jesus' words, not all who say to me, Lord, Lord, right? That weighs heavy on me. And so I'm always gonna ask people, check, double check. What, what, what do, have you actually put your faith and hope in Jesus Christ? Because what I want more than anything else is that when it's all done, whether I stand beside your grave or meet you in heaven, that, that I can know for a fact that I did everything I can do as a minister of the gospel for you to hear the truth and for you to repent and believe. That is my heart. And so I always ask, are you saved? Have you repented and put your trust in Christ? And does your life bear the fruit of a transformed life? And if so, praise the Lord. And if not, then my encouragement is don't walk out of here without coming to talk to me or Hugh as one of the deacons or or Johnny um, or Keith um, or Brad or Gary. Every one of us would be happy to talk to you and, 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 and minister to you and help you to get to where you're beginning to walk with Jesus Christ. In fact, let's all bow our heads and let's come before the Lord. Father, we love you. We thank you so much for your grace and your unending mercy. And we thank you for the truth of your word and we thank you for the simplicity of the gospel that it is by faith and that's it. It is not by any external actions. It's not by our, our, our church attendance. It's not by our tithing. It's not even by the words that we say to other people. It is by faith that we repent repent that we turn away from our sin and we put our hope and trust in you. And that those who are saved, Lord, will continue to walk in repentance and faith. We are not perfect and we won't be. And we will all stumble and fall, but you will give us the gift to continue to repent and continue to hold on to that promise. And that when we fall down, Lord God, that we would immediately get up and we just hold on to Jesus saying, Lord, you promised to save me. And I'm holding on to that promise and depending on that. And I pray, Father, that whoever may be that's not here, that may not have actually moved to that place, Lord, that you'd convict their heart, Lord, and convince them to do just that, to put their trust wholly in Jesus Christ. And Father, whether we do that in prayer, praise the Lord, or whether they just make a confession and they shout it from the rooftops, whatever that may come about, Lord, that you'd work in their hearts. And I pray, Father, that you'd give us a missionary spirit in this church, Lord, to go out into the world to continually remind people of who Jesus is and to call them to to believe, Lord. And I pray your blessing over every single person here and their families that are represented as well. And I pray, Father God, that, Lord, you would bring revival to this church and this community. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.